It's Monday, September 13th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The deadline for the Gavin Newsom recall vote is Tuesday. Over 7 million votes have been cast so far, and the final push will see President Biden hitting California in support of Newsom. We also saw a last-minute development as actress Rose McGowan alleged that Newsom's wife called her with a message from Harvey Weinstein's lawyer six months before her accusations went public, asking her what they could do to help the issue go away. Ginger Gibson, deputy Washington digital editor at NBC News, joins us for more. Next, Texas schools are surveilling students' online activity, and many times they are doing it without their knowledge or consent. Trying to watch out for signs of distress, violence, or self-harm, Schools are using technology from companies like Social Sentinel, GoGuardian, and others to monitor social media posts, email, and other online activity. Ari Sen, freelance investigative journalist at the Dallas Morning News, joins us for how Texas schools are keeping tabs on students. Finally, we have heard for a while now that sitting for prolonged periods of time can be very harmful to your health, contributing to high blood sugar, high cholesterol, and messing with your metabolic health. To counter the ill effects of sitting too long, a new study says that moving for three minutes every 30 minutes can be very helpful. Gretchen Reynolds, phys ed columnist at the New York Times, joins us for what to know. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Nearly two million people have signed a petition to recall this man. About a third of them were the very people that voted for him two years earlier. 63% of Hispanics voted for him two years earlier. Now the majority of Hispanics want him gone. The majority of independents voted for him two years earlier. Now the majority of them want him gone. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. The deadline for the Gavin Newsom recall is just one day away on Tuesday. Voters in California face two questions. Do you want to recall Governor Gavin Newsom? And the second question is, if you do, who should replace him? And right now, conservative radio host Larry Elder is leading in those polls. You know, it's the last big push. We're going to see President Biden out uh, on Monday hitting the campaign trail with Newsom. And a lot of people are saying that this is uh, a big political test of Biden's influence as well. Right. We've arrived at Election Eve. So. California voters all received a ballot in the mail weeks ago. They all had the option to mail that back. They are now can go to the polls on Tuesday. So we've we've sort of already been in election day for a week. <laughs> right. uh, but but you're right. President Biden will travel to California this afternoon in order to campaign with Newsom. And really what we're seeing here is a bit of a referendum on COVID. Governor Newsom has tried to make this about COVID, arguing that he has taken the necessary steps to keep California safe and that if he doesn't get reelected, that Larry Elder specifically or any other Republican will pull back some of those measures that he's taken. And I think we're going to hear Biden talk about COVID and about responding to COVID whenever he's in California, just telling voters like this is what we need in order to keep our state and our people safe. You know, it is the last day before the the deadline for the election. I mean, how much could be attributed to President Biden, you know, one way or the other, if he wins or loses? Well, they're hoping is the attention that comes with him being there will remind people. I mean, really what it comes down to, California is a state that is much more democratic than it was the last time it elected a Republican governor. And that was in a recall. And Democrats really believe that this is about getting their people to pay attention and show up. 
that if you everyone voted that the Democrats would win in a landslide. But if they can't convince Democrats this is important and, and remind them this is something they need to do, then they'll lose. And so really they're hoping that it's about attention. It's about, you know, you're more likely to be aware the president is there whenever he travels to the state and, and that will sort of jog people uh, to get that ballot either mailed in or to show up on Tuesday and vote. Seven million ballots have been cast so far. Um, a lot of them are, have been Democrats. So, you know, we'll see. We'll see what happens, obviously, after Tuesday. There was a wrench thrown into this whole thing also by actress Rose McGowan. She's actually going to join Larry Elder on stage to share a, a, a kind of a weird story related to Harvey Weinstein. She claimed that Gavin Newsom's wife called her, emailed her six months before McGowan came out with her allegations against Harvey Weinstein and basically said, uh, you know, relayed a message from his lawyer, David Boyce, saying, you know, what can we do to make you happy? Basically, like, what can we do to make, make this story go away, basically? That's right. I mean, I really think this is just part of the the theme that has been critical of Newsom, that he is an elitist, that he's out of touch that he dined at the French Laundry and ignored his own COVID rules. I mean, really what they're trying to say is, you know, he's not one of you. And Larry Elder, the, the leading Republican, who she has sort of given her support to in doing this, is a person that many Californians know. They've heard on the radio for a long time. Um, they're familiar with his voice, uh, his name, his story. And the argument being made that, that Newsom is sort of out of touch and, and Elder is one of you as somebody who's been around for a long time. Yeah, just an interesting uh, last minute wrench thrown into all of that. So we'll see if that impacts anything as well. Uh, as I mentioned, Tuesday is the deadline for that recall. And then uh, lastly, before we leave, just another interesting story, uh, an interesting development for those that were in prison and released because of COVID precautions through the CARES Act. Some of them might have to go back. Um, I guess they're saying that, it, you know, once the emergency declaration ends for the pandemic, maybe about a month after a lot of people might have to go back. We're looking at maybe 4,500 inmates that would have to go back that are currently on, on home confinement. That's right. A great story from my colleagues at NBCnews.com looking at this, this real question about what is going to happen to these people um, who were serving prison sentences. The CARES Act allowed them to be released um, under the argument that they weren't dangerous, they didn't pose a risk to society, and the crowding and the number of people in prisons was really an issue for the spread of the disease. And do they have to go back? Yes, it looks like they might have to go back a month after the declaration is up. Uh, to be clear, though, that could be a long time right. from now before we get to the end of the declaration. But I suspect we're going to hear more about this and people really pushing judges or the president to take some action because these are people that have demonstrated they can abide by the law while they're at home. They haven't violated these orders, and it seems kind of trivial to make them go back after all this time. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, you know, if you email your friend something, it would scan that email message to detect what it says to scan for things like potential self-harm. Joining us now is Ari Sen freelance investigative journalist at the Dallas Morning News. Thanks for joining us, Ari. Thanks for having me. I want to talk about an interesting story you wrote about Texas schools and how, in many cases, they're surveilling their students online and 
often without their knowledge or consent. They're looking at things like their social media. They're looking at things like their email and things that they're typing in on Google, all sorts of stuff. And there's a few companies that are involved in all of this. Uh, Social Sentinel, Gaggle, Securely, GoGuardian are some of the top ones. And uh, like I said, it, you know, the aim of this is to protect the students. They say uh, monitors see if they're saying anything about suicide or hurting other students. But, you know, there's a lot of concerns about what's being done. So, Ari, help us walk through some of this. What are we seeing? Like you said, we walked through four different very common technologies uh, from these companies, GoGuardian, Gaggle, Securely, and Social Sentinel. And these technologies really sort of do a range of things. So, for example, Social Sentinel's technology sort of scans public posts on social media, mainly Twitter, whereas on the other end of the spectrum, GoGuardian will track basically anything a student does on their device. So what I was really trying to figure out with this story was how prolific is this technology and specifically how prolific is it in the state of Texas? And what we were able to determine through our reporting is that more than 200 school districts in Texas have used this technology in the past six years. And when you count up the number of students they had in those years, that covers several million. As you mentioned, these services do different things. Social Sentinel scans social media posts, public social media posts. So, you know, that's one thing. But for some of these other companies that, you know, monitor the students on their devices, how is that done? Is it an app that they have to download? I mean, how do they get access to that? So normally the school district pays for these services and district administrators, administrators set them up on those district devices. It's like sort of an app or a web portal that can be controlled by the district's IT people or their staff. So once that's in place for Gaggle and for Securely's auditor service, for example, it would track everything that's used in the Google suite of services. So, you know, if you email your friend something, it would scan that email message to detect what it says to scan for things like potential self-harm or potential indications of of violence against another student. And have uh, the school districts at all reported any successes that they might have had with this? Because obviously there's some criticism uh, surrounding all of this, but have they reported successes with it? I did hear a lot of anecdotes, particularly on the self-harm side of things, from school districts saying, we used this and we were able to prevent some self-harm in our district. The problem with these anecdotes is that because there are a lot of uh, privacy issues at play here, particularly with the student privacy law, FERPA, most of the school districts can't be very specific about these examples. So it's really hard to sort of evaluate those examples independently to determine how useful the service was parents feel about all of this surveillance and, and, and our schools being more forthcoming with them about, uh, you know, the monitoring that they're doing? How, how is that, all that playing out? You know, it's really a range in terms of districts notifying parents about this technology. Some districts don't notify parents at all about this technology. But I would say a large majority of the districts that I contacted do say they notify parents, but the way in which they do it is they send home these technology authorized use policies, which say something generally like we will monitor uh, email or we may monitor email, but they don't mention sort of the specific technology. So I find that a lot of parents actually don't know that this monitoring is in place 
or don't know the extent to which their students may be tracked and monitored. Right. And as we've been saying, you know, it does a lot of different things, the social media, the email, and just kind of, you know, anything that they're typing into Google. So there's a lot of different stuff there. The legality of all of this, uh, you know, where does that stand? Because, you know, for uh, one of the companies you mentioned, the article Social Sentinel, they say we're just monitoring public social media posts. So there is no illegality there. You know, we're not really getting in their privacy, but people are arguing this on all sides. These technologies are pretty new. Social Sentinel started around the end of 2014, beginning of 2015. And uh, because these technologies are so new, the legal questions here are sort of wide open. The scholars that I did talk to are kind of very uncertain as to whether this would violate students' First and Fourth Amendment rights and sort of what in particular the technology would have to be used for that legal question really to come into play. What we do know is there was a recent Supreme Court case about a student who was punished for posting a message on Snapchat. And uh, in that case, the Supreme Court decided that the school district had violated that student's First Amendment right. Now, it's important to point out here that that message was not identified using a monitoring service. So we don't know how exactly the use of these monitoring technologies might play into some of the legal questions here. Ari Sen, freelance investigative journalist at the Dallas Morning News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. They gave half of them a phone app that alerted them every half hour and said, time to stand up, basically. And then they had the people for three minutes do something. Joining us now is Gretchen Reynolds. Phys Ed columnist at the New York Times. Thanks for joining us, Gretchen. Thanks so much for having me. We've heard for a long time already how bad sitting for long periods of time can be. Just being sedentary is not good for your body, not good for your health, obviously. There's a new study that came out that basically says uh, you should be exercising for three minutes every half hour to counter the ill effects of sitting for too long. On paper, that sounds pretty easy. You know, six minutes for an entire hour if you can move around, that's pretty doable, I guess you could say. So Gretchen, tell us a little bit more about this new study and what we're seeing in there. One of the things this study actually wanted to do is see if, in fact, that is doable, because there has been quite a bit of research into how to break up sitting time. Because, as you said, we know it's not good for us. It contributes to risks for diabetes and heart disease and all kinds of things. So there have been a lot of lab studies of how often should people rise to reduce their blood sugar and so on. But they were in the laboratory, and that's not an office. It's not our home. It's not realistic. And they also often lasted a day. So the people in the researchers in this study wanted to set up an experiment in a workplace that involved real people, and they would really try and set the parameters of what is realistic in terms of getting up and moving, um, what would be possible that would actually show results and wouldn't totally annoy every other coworker or your spouse if you're at home. And so they thought that it would probably be 30 minutes because that's often what showed up in the laboratory studies. So they gave half of a group of people, office workers with sedentary jobs, they gave half of them a phone app that alerted them every half hour and said, time to stand up, basically. 
And then they had the people for three minutes do something, because there's also research that shows that just standing still is probably not enough for our health. So they had them either walk, and they had to walk at least 15 steps in order for the app to count it as an activity break. They could go up and down stairs. They suggested they do like very light calisthenics, hop in place, do a couple of squats, but do that every half an hour. And what they found was that people did do it. And this experiment lasted for three weeks. It was in Stockholm, Sweden. So I should also yeah. say that these were Swedish people. And, and, the other, um, and the other thing, too, which which I appreciated, right, is they picked middle aged people as you mentioned, workers in an office setting, people that were high risk for type 2 diabetes. So these are people that would be most affected by like a prolonged life of sitting and everything. You know, they're already kind of on the cusp, let's say. So doing it with them, which I, th- I feel like a lot of people in this country might be close to, right? It, it just feels like that's hitting uh, the point even better. Exactly. They really wanted to look at who are the people most at risk of sitting all the time. And all of us are, but people who already have some metabolic issues, um, in this case, they had some insulin resistance, all of these things that could progress to type 2 diabetes, which is severe. You don't want that. And so, again, they did this for three weeks. And by and large, compliance was pretty good. The scientists said that people didn't mind getting up for three minutes. Some of them didn't do the whole three minutes. They might take the 15 steps and quit. But by and large, people said this fit into their work life. If they worked in a cubicle, they could just, you know, do some wall squats, walk in place, something. If they were working at home, they could just walk around the living room. And so they did, for the most part, comply pretty well. And at the end of three weeks, they showed results. Compared to the control group, the group that didn't do anything, they did have somewhat better blood sugar control, especially in the morning, which is actually important because it looks like having really high blood sugar overnight is particularly unhealthy. And so their blood sugar overnight appeared to be better regulated And they had far fewer of the sort of spikes and dips that could be very dangerous in terms of blood sugar control. And this is the only change they made. They didn't change their diet. They didn't start exercising, (laughs) unless you count this as exercise. And one of the interesting things, too, with all of this is you mentioned in the article, you know, you can blame the muscles in your legs. That's why it's important to get up and move or do the squats, whatever it could be. But it's the lower half of your body that really affects the entire body when when you're sitting for too long or just being sedentary. Those are huge muscles. And usually if you're even if you're standing up, if you're walking, they're contracting a lot. And that means they need fuel. They're slurping blood sugar out of your, your bloodstream. They're making sure that your blood levels stay level. If you're just sitting, none of that happens. But the muscles also, when they contract, they release certain enzymes that help to break down cholesterol in your bloodstream. So if that's not happening, you get heightened amounts of, of cholesterol. And that can happen in people who are perfectly healthy. So people who are already have some metabolic issues, it really exacerbates it to sit for a long time. So for all of us, I, I think the lesson of this study is healthy or not, young or old, try and get up at least every half an hour and move around for a few minutes. Gretchen Reynolds, phys ed columnist at the New York Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. 
That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. <laughs>